Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Do You Know What? We are recording today on June 15th, four days after the great Leo Mindel's birthday, but more importantly, six months and 10 days until the most important birthday. That will be mine. Hope you've got your maths calculators out there and uh, I'll be expecting your presence. It is beautiful sunshine and we know that the weather is about to change. So before it does, we will run into this episode so that you can listen to it when you're sheltering indoors. I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky. I am the CEO of Liberal Judaism. And as always, I am joined by my great friends and fellow presenters, Leo Mindell and Rebecca Singerman-Knight. Leo, say hello. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Rebecca. Another week, another year is I'm a year older than I was the last time you heard from me. Uh, It doesn't really make any difference when you get to a certain age, does it? Birthdays come quite quickly these days. Yeah, you would know that as well wouldn't you Rebecca I uh, would I'm in the same decade you say decade as me now absolutely absolutely yes. did you have a nice day Leo I did I saw my son and daughter for breakfast uh, very nice before the daughter then decided that what was far far more important than spending any time with me was to disappear off camping with all of her friends but after she had raided my loft for a load of things that she wanted to take with her sounds about right yeah doesn't want to hang out with her old man no no interest other things more important well it's been Richard's birthday as well well not quite it's in a few days but we were we've done two weekends away celebrating the one we missed last year and uh, this weekend we went to the lake district and uh, walked a lot without kids and without dog so very very peaceful oh that sounds lovely lake district's great now i can believe i've never been there before and um, it's like switzerland and Tuscany and the lakes and green and pleasant land. We actually had a long discussion that it's it's very British that we describe our green and pleasant land. Not the green and wonderful, stunningly beautiful, but (laughs) very pleasant. Very understated. Yes, the British understatement. And have you been up to anything? You must, Rebecca, with this weather have been in your garden. Oh, I've been living in my garden. Yeah, absolutely. The peonies are out in full bloom. If you go onto Instagram, you will see a lot of pictures of my peonies and my poppies and roses yeah no it's looking fantastic i'm actually out there usually first thing in the morning with a cup of tea now seven o'clock and my book avoiding twitter which i'm doing a reasonable good job of are you still managing to read your 10 pages in the morning and 10 pages in the yeah, evening pretty much i've stopped sort of counting quite as religiously as i was when i started this project but it's nearly a year now because it was last rosh hashanah that i started this 10 pages in the morning 10 pages in the evening thing so i'm definitely reading yeah still one fiction book and one fact book. Uh, that's quite impressive. Actually, books are a great uh, introduction into our guest today because I uh, went to my post box yesterday morning and there was a book from uh, sent to me by our wonderful guest. I'm really delighted. We will put a link to the book in our in our show notes. But the wonderful Sarah Wooden from Dignity and Dying is with us today. And it's a new relationship for us, really, Sarah. We've only just really begun to get to know each other other and it's very brave of you to say yes Charlie I'll come and appear with Leo and Rebecca and you on your podcast but we're really delighted so which one of us is scary because <laughs> it's not it's not me and 
Rebecca that Sarah should be worried about there, Charlie. Well, that's probably true. Although I think the idea of being with us who barely let guests get a word in edgeways is probably in and of itself insulting. I think that would be a good time to actually say, Sarah, welcome. I was going to say, I haven't actually said anything yet. Sarah, tell people a little bit about who you are. It's lovely to be with you. And um, it's it's really nice to be here with, with Charlie and, and Rebecca and Leo as well. So I'm the Chief Executive of Dignity in Dying and it's a sister charity, Compassion in Dying, which provides services under the current law for people at the end of life. Dignity in Dying campaigns so that terminally ill, mentally competent adults can have the choice of an assisted death in this country so that they don't have to go to Switzerland if they can afford to, which One Britain is doing every week, and they don't have to suffer. I've been uh, chief executive since 2008, quite uh, a considerable time. My background is as a pro-choice campaigner. So I led campaigns on reproductive choice and gender equality at the Family Planning Association and the Equal Opportunities Commission. Um, I was a founding trustee of Abortion Rights, which is the descendant of the Abortion Law Reform Association. And that was the campaign, that was the the voluntary sector organisation that achieved law change on abortion. In 1967, it worked with David Steele and Roy Jenkins, then the Home Secretary. So I've kind of moved from choice at the beginning of life to choice at the end of life, just kind of taking the words of another sort of important campaigner for me, anyway, Sheila McKechnie. And she said to be paid to take on issues of unfairness and injustice is something incredibly worthwhile socially and very fulfilling personally. And I guess that's why I've been here so long. That's what I would have asked you, Sarah. I would have said, is this a job or is this a vocation? And you've kind of answered that with the quote, but how did it start? Where, how did you get involved? What was your personal journey that this was where you wanted to be? Well, you'd have to ask my husband and uh, and our daughter really about the vocation thing. I think I, I do think about the job too much, but then it's more than a job. It's not something you, you know, you, you put down at the end of the day, because this is about people's lives. I think when you can die better, you can live better. I think one of the reasons I'm, I've been here for so long, Charlie, is because I've been really touched by the stories of, of people that I've met while I've been here. And I think for me, I mean, logically, the law should change. Overseas progress is huge. 200 million people now have access to these laws. Doctors' views are changing. Parliamentarians' views are changing. But at the end of the day, it's those personal stories that really affect you. Dr. Anne McPherson, she died a decade ago now. She had pancreatic cancer and she was so desperate to have the choice of choosing how she wanted to die at the end. I, I felt personally responsible, really. I think that I think a lot of women show leadership by taking responsibility. And I think that's what I did. The cause is so important to me is that I feel I've got to bring it home for people. Can we just rewind just a little bit and go a little bit further back? Because I'm always interested in the sort of choices that people make right at the beginning of their careers. So whether that's when they leave school or university, and I don't know what that was for you. When you do sort of leave full-time education, there's that do do I go into the corporate world? Do I go into the education sector? Do I go into the voluntary sector? I mean, what did you do and what was driving those choices at that time? Or was it a conscious choice? Or a lot of people just kind of fall into things, don't they, in their early years? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that I didn't fall into things. I chose things, but they were the wrong thing for me. Um, so in a way, I learned from my failures. Mm. Basically, I did a science degree. I did a neuro- neurobiology degree. I you know, did an MSc 
in something else. I went into marketing. I went into the corporate sector. I was a, a LucasAid brand graduate. I didn't work at all. I got sacked. Oh. Um, I think you, I think you've got to be um, sacked at least once in your career, and I was sacked twice. Okay. Um, so I did that. I kind of want to know why you were sacked. I mean, feel free not to answer that question, but tell us if you can. <laughs> you, you want to know if I did something naughty, don't you? No, we I think I was just a failure. Um, You're just not very good at being a LucasAid brand person. I was a really, really good salesperson, uh, outstanding, um, and that's really stood me in good stead. Um, through my career but you've got to remember I mean this is the early 90s I don't think I particularly fitted in to the corporate world Um, and one thing I did find really strongly was that I couldn't be a cog I had to know the big picture of what was going on and it just didn't mean that much to me you know selling units of fizzy drinks it didn't really mean that much I think from I mean they'd have to answer for themselves about why they sacked me I just think I was very good I think it was as as simple as that then I went to a sales promotion agency and and I was equally poor I'd say and then I, I had a sort of bit of a revelation and realized that I needed a cause right I went into the voluntary sector and worked for an organization called community service volunteers which was great I felt that the the whole kind of ethos of the organization sector was right for me but the cause wasn't and then I got my breakthrough job at the family planning association when I was just 30 and I think ability has to meet opportunity and that's where I met my opportunity really so it all started happening then was it a subject you were quite passionate about at that point or did you become more passionate about the subject once you had joined the family planning organization i've always been pro-choice i've always been philosophically pro-choice you know very very pro people having their sort of bodily autonomy but i think i got more and more engaged with the subject as i was there and i understand the sort of the, the battle lines that were drawn between people who were encroaching on people's bodily autonomy and at the end of the day i think this might be something i, I don't really like bullies very much i don't like people telling other people what to do um and i think that that um this campaign, like like the campaigns at the Family Planning Association, like the campaigns for gay rights, is really around people trying to force a very stubborn establishment to understand that they have as much right as them to say what's going to happen to their bodies, who they're going to love, that they should have votes. Um, and I think there's a real theme running through my career yeah. around personal choice and freedom. It reminds me of that great quote I see when people say that they don't like gay marriage. It's like, well, then don't have one. Exactly. Got to do with you. Exactly. Yesterday was World Blood Donation Day. Uh, I was donating yesterday morning. It was the first day that they opened up donations for a number of members of the LGBTQ community that couldn't donate in the past. And they've changed the form. And it just asks some questions that they need to ask. But everybody now gets asked the same questions. It used to just ask men a certain question and now they don't do it anymore and it's right it's right there's obviously risk if risks are there but they've sat there and gone this is the sensible thing this is where we need to go you don't allow drug users to donate so we sit there and say these are the rules and that's it and i think it's exactly the same as you're saying there sarah the Mm. areas that you're involved in is why have i got to enforce my views and opinions on you when it's got nothing to do with you. Well, when we did the campaign for same-sex marriage, when liberal Judaism was really involved, we always talked about the fact that it was a campaign about equality. It wasn't a campaign about marriage. It wasn't a campaign actually about one segment of of society. It was a campaign about equality. And that always really... struck me um, and I think hearing that come across but I want to come back to the family planning for a moment because that was a really radical movement 
in many ways. I think for for many of us who were young women growing up, and I, you know, I remember my mother having the stickers. I can visualize it now. Mm-hmm. So there was a sense of it of about it being equality and bullies, but it was also very radical. There was something intrinsically radical that that did, I think, shape the wave of feminism. I think that's right. But isn't it interesting how things that were radical then become normalized over time? And, and that really applies to assisted dying, I think. I mean, I think, you know, mm-hmm. we'll look back and say, what was all the fuss about? Of course, people should have the choice to accelerate an unbearable dying process. Of course, that's a reasonable way forward rather than the kind of convoluted approach at the moment where you could withdraw treatment that will cause your death, but you can't ask for medical treatment that will cause your death. It's ridiculous. It may be that we'll look back on it and say, and in fact, I think you're right, we will look back on it and it will feel like this was the right thing to do. But in the same way as the Family Planning Association shaped a change of culture, and it's that change of culture that feels, is that what you see with assisted dying, is that there will be a change of culture? Absolutely, Charlie. I completely see a change of culture here. And I think assisted dying is just one part of it. It's a huge part because it's symbolically so powerful. But hardly anybody will choose it. Most people will want it to be there and want to talk about the option of having it, but but very few will, will actually go ahead and have an assisted death. What I want is for people to have what we call the building box of control at end of life. I think the current system turns doctors into gods and it keeps patients as supplicants um, at the end of life in particular. And I think that what I want to do is reverse that power and have people who have been empowered throughout their lives, they've made decisions and choices more now more than ever to be able to make similar choices, to really understand the implications of the diagnosis, the likely journey through that and make real decisions about what's going to happen to them. And do you know what? That's what doctors do because they know the implications of certain diagnoses and they choose very different deaths as a result. So for me, on a personal side... There's two things that come to mind when you mention this. The first was with my mother. My, my mother passed away about five years ago and she wanted to die at home. And the hospital were making all this fuss and just like, and they were like, well, we're not sure we can transport her in the ambulance because, you know, it could make her situation worse. Until my sister stepped in and said, she is dying. She wants to go home now. Shut up and let us leave. Mm-hmm. She left. She died about an hour and a half after getting home. And they were literally making a huge fuss over this. And it ended up causing us an immense amount of problem post because we couldn't get a doctor's certificate and I could go on. We had to, she had to be taken back to the hospital and a whole rigmarole that went on for over a week of an argument of her body being moved backwards and forwards because nobody would sign a certificate because she ref- she wanted to go home. She wanted some control. She yeah. wanted to control. She didn't want to be there. She wanted to be in her own bed. Mm. And thank you very much. And you're going, but you're, we're arguing against something. And they go, yeah, but if we keep her here and it's like, keep her here for what? Mm. Sorry, sorry. Can you just, you know, we know everybody in this room knows this isn't going any further and you are making this into a big fuss about something that doesn't actually, you're not going to extend her life by another six weeks by doing this. In fact, all you're doing is you're extending her pain. Just get out of our way. And then the second issue I had was with my sister who died about two years ago. And I went round to her, she had cancer and she she had complications that caused a load of problems and she was in a massive amount of pain. And I went round to her three days before and she's like this, that, and I said, no, you just need to write down. I want you to sit now and write down exactly what you want at your funeral now because you Mm -hmm. need to actually do this now 
Not in a not not tomorrow, not in an hour and a half time. Get on with it and do this and sort this out. And the minute she did, because my sister was a real control freak and very, <laughs> very super, super, super organized. It's like this has to be done your way, not the way that your mother wanted it done. My sister wanted this, this, and this. And we gave her exactly what she wanted. And you sit there and you go, these are about choices. It's not about, as you said earlier, Sarah, it's not about me enforcing my choice or a doctor enforcing their choice. It's about the person who's sitting in the middle of the circle making their choices. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And then the peace of mind that comes from knowing once you've made those choices is all encompassing. To what extent do you have or do you get any resistance from the medical profession because what we've been talking about I think is control and agency and I thankfully I haven't lost either of my parents but my dad was very very sick a few a few years ago again I recognize some of the stories that Leo you've just been telling or like say thank you thankfully my dad is still with us but we really had to fight for what we thought was best against the doctors who frankly believed that they knew better and that seems to be similar to what Leo was saying particularly in the instance of his mum you know the doctors knew better and they wanted the mum where they could control her do you recognize that Sarah and do you do you get resistance? Because what you're saying is, you know, the patients and their family should be taking the control back. I am. And I think there's a lot of parallels between death and birth. And birth is sort of further down the journey, really, in terms of, of people who, you know, who are giving birth, having the choice, the families having the choice. I actually come from a medical family. Um, my identical twin sister is a GP and there are quite okay, a few medics in the, in, in the family. And I think it's fair to say that, that medics are not at the vanguard of of social reform. So remember that doctors uh, objected to the formation of the NHS. They objected to contraceptive pill. They objected to abortion, of course, famously. And I think that they they haven't been huge supporters of choice, but things are changing very, very much. And there's been a, quite a, a recent change. So the British Medical Association did a, the biggest survey of medical opinion last year. And it showed that the majority wanted the choice for themselves, that only a, a third of doctors Doctors wanted the British Medical Association to stay opposed to assisted dying because historically that's been their stance. The physicians have moved to neutrality. The GP survey showed a similar huge drop in opposition and an increase in support. So I think doctors are, are moving, but like politicians, they're late to the story, really. I think it's really important for, for people to kind of bring that sense of themselves to all medical discussions that, you know, mm. that, that you, know, you, you know your own body best, um, that you want to hear what they've got to say, but you want to take an informed decision uh, and know what your options are. You don't want you don't want to be talked down to. You don't want that paternalistic medical culture necessarily to sweep you up and make decisions for you. And I think at, at the end of life, as a medical culture, is particularly old-fashioned and paternalistic. I remember hearing um, a number of years ago, and I I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it's something like somewhere between a third and a half of all the money that the NHS spends on you is spent in your last two weeks of your life last six months is it last six months it's last six months is when is when people tend to have huge amounts of interventions yeah medical interventions they go into hospital many times yeah that, that, that is that is borne out. Yeah. I, I appreciate that in in many cases it extends that period. It's extending at, at a huge amount of cost, and obviously these things are these are these are really difficult conversations. One of our best friend's daughter is a vet, and the way that the veterinary world works is completely different. Is the cost of this intervention beneficial? 
versus what you're going to do. And then I just, sometimes I sit there and I look at it and I look at what happened both with my sister and my mother and you're going, um, who is benefiting by all this money being spent? Well, Leo, let's put a couple of myths to bed here. I mean, assisted dying is not about cost. So there would be no savings through assisted dying. This is, this is, this is not a financially driven initiative. This is about patient choice. It's about people themselves saying that they're, they're dying anyway. And it's mm. about shortening an unbearable dying process. And also, I think the second myth is this isn't something that you decide for others. And you referred to this in the culture point you made earlier. It's about them deciding for themselves. I think you used the phrase, they're sitting in the middle of the circle. Um, and I think that that's really 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 important so it's not about our choices about the suffering of other people it's about their choice uh, for their own suffering so having said all, all of that this law change is coming down the track i mean there are there are so many countries that have got it i mean half of the g7 countries have got assisted dying that, kept, that came to visit cornwall there's states in the u.s uh, australia all of canada new zealand's legalized spain's just legalized uh austria Germany, Portugal, closer to home, the Republic of Ireland has a bill they're discussing at the moment. And even Jersey has a citizens' assembly that they're discussing at the moment. What do you brought the culture change around? Maybe with um, other situations, we can see that there's a time that things change. What what do you think is happening in society that means that this is the moment? I think all social progress comes from an uprising of of, of the public view. I think that, that basically that's where it has to stem from. So I think it's really around a momentum of grassroots that say insisting on it against a stubborn establishment, as I've referred to earlier. So whether it's a political or a medical establishment or even a religious establishment, and I think we should discuss that here. And I think it's it's in these other countries, I think that they've been more open to those discussions. I think they've had inquiries into the sort of the problems of the current law. I think often we're not talking about a, a, the assisted dying being an alternative to excellent and outstanding palliative and end-of-life care we're talking about it being a, a plus being part of the palliative care doctor's toolbox um, and I think those conversations have been forced and I think those those democracies have either been forced by legal cases because they've got constitutions for example in Canada or their parliamentarians are more open to the debate. So you mentioned religious leaders and often we think of religion as being conservative maybe being on the side of um, you know slow to, to social change but certainly liberal Judaism I like to think, has been at the forefront of social change, maybe one step ahead sometimes even than where our congregations are at. What's it like working with a religious group of people, with religious leaders um, on campaigns such as this, particularly with Dignity and Dying? I think it's amazing. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that you have to practice what you preach. So if we're, if we're listening to what people are saying and where they're coming from, then it's not up to me to make um, value judgments about what their faith is or what they believe in. You know, my views are my views and are for me. I don't want to dictate to other people. I, I'm, I'm really in awe of people who stand up against the status quo within their own sector. I think it's much harder harder for people to do it when you've got a you know religious orthodoxy i mean you talked about the liberal judaism wing charlie what about orthodox judaism i mean they are very very opposed to this so i think you know for people who are prepared to stand up and be the early adopters and say no we are going to look at this you know i think it's incredibly brave and there are people in 
all these different sectors who were doing it. So in palliative care, where again, the, the strong culture was based on a woman called Cicely Saunders, who in the 60s brought in palliative care, was, was an amazing advocate and challenger in her time, but she was also an evangelical Christian. And she was very opposed to what she termed euthanasia and made sure that the, the the whole kind of culture and sector was very opposed to it. And that, that still rules today. I mean, I've got a, a lot of admiration for someone like um, George Carey, um, who, again, has, has, has stood up and challenged that. I mean, I think you need to be brave but you, and you need to be principled, but you also need to be quite clever to say, well, you know, actually, maybe things aren't working. We've got a moral rule here. But if this moral rule calls, causes huge suffering, then maybe it's time we looked at the moral rule. And you'd be surprised how few people are able to do that. There's a young woman who is um, works for the Board of Deputies who was speaking on um, one of our, I think it was two years ago on Biennial, and was talking about leadership. It struck a chord, I think, with so many of our communities with this idea that leadership is being you know, enough ahead of the people that you're leading that they can see you leading but not so ahead that you you know you get lost and they can't you lose everyone you know. yeah. and I feel like with the campaigns that we've certainly been involved in that the cleverness I mean I'm not saying it's my cleverness it's the movements that has been in that moment that it, it's been not too far ahead of the congregations and where people are at because you now we've heard so much support I mean I've had so many emails and conversations with people since we publicised in that it was already there it didn't take us doing it for people to already feel this it just took us articulating something mm. but at the same time not being so far ahead of it that you know it wasn't enough in the public eye that people had given it a chance to think about i'd really like sort of some other current leaders like the, the justin welby for example the current archbishop of canterbury to pause on the, on this 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 thought and really give it some thought and not just go down the status quo sort of orthodox line i mean you know remember william wilberforce and the quakers who forged ahead in terms of slavery and overturned slavery I, I i really wish that he would he would surprise us but i fear he won't bring around earlier in your earlier discussion about pro-choice and everything to do with family planning this is a big issue to me on a personal level and on a big level you know i have a, a daughter and it was a discussion we had with her a long time ago um, and she won't mind me saying it because she's very open about it, that she her, she has an implant and it's something that my wife had. It's not that she's pro anything else. It's just that she's in control and she's in control of where she is and she's in control of what she wants to do. And I suppose I sit there sometimes going, I don't understand how you can be against this. For, for me, it's her choice. Just as much as I want her to wear a seatbelt when she's driving, I want her to be safe in whatever she wants to do. And I just look at these issues and I think it's as Charlie's saying you have to get the issue out there and discuss it. It's fascinating Leo because what you've highlighted there in some ways is you became pro-choice in some ways by having a daughter and what's different maybe with the assisted dying campaign is that we can't wait till we're all dead to be activists for assisted dying or for it only to be those people in those last moments of their life. We have to change a culture that people are thinking about dying well and about, um, you know, living wills, thinking what people, you know, one of our jobs, I think, as rabbis, as much as if you talk to many rabbis, one of the most amazing parts of their of their job, of their vocation is doing funerals mm. but actually probably even more important than the moment when we do the funerals because they're very much for the families is facilitating those conversations beforehand so when somebody joins a synagogue one of the great things about synagogue and having funeral uh, membership as part of the 
as part of the membership means that those conversations happen. So you ask people, what do you want to do at the end of life? What And facilitating those conversations. And I know I am much better than most of my peers about having conversations about the end of life and what I want and what I want for my children if something happened and all of those conversations because of my job. And actually, we've got to mirror that because if we wait until we're mm. in the point where we want assisted dying, that campaign won't be through. I think that that maybe is a difference on this campaign. Yeah, I mean, there's a taboo about death per se, isn't there? And talking about it and acknowledging it, particularly, I think, for younger people, and I use that term quite quite loosely, do you have to deal with it at a much younger level? And I think sometimes we're just not prepared. As a society, we're not prepared. We're not prepared when it happens to us. We're not prepared when it happens to those who are close to us. So this is, you know, it's a wider point than what, what we're talking about specifically in terms of assisted dying. But if we could talk about death more as part of our everyday conversation and accept it as as part of life, then you know, that conversation would be easier as well, I think. I think that's right. And I was listening to the um, How to Fail podcast this week with Ed Miliband on, and he talked about his father's death in Ed's mid-20s and how much it had affected him. And apparently his father had ongoing serious heart problems and was in and out of hospital, but the doctors kept telling him to have hope. And, you know, it shattered Ed and the family when, you know, he died over several weeks because they hadn't been expecting it. They hadn't known that they had to deal with it um, and that it was going to come up. And I completely agree with what Charlie mentioned earlier about making a living will, um, an advanced decision, having somebody being able to make decisions about your medical treatment if you lose consciousness or competence through a lasting power of attorney, asking about a do not resuscitate order. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage of that during of those during the pandemic. But actually, if you've got end stage cancer or serious health problems, then the last thing you want is somebody jumping up and down on your ribs. Um, it's an incredibly invasive procedure that has quite low levels of recovery anyway so you know it's, it's really about having having these conversations Diana Melly said um, during the pandemic that she she'd had all of these tools lined up and, and the panel on any questions that were interviewing her said oh gosh you're very brave and she said I'm not brave I'm just sensible it's just sensible to to have these these conversations and have these these discussions codified. That's something that I find super frustrating. As I say, losing my mother, my sister from cancer. You know, when you sit there and someone says they've got cancer and then somebody else says, well, you know, I hope you fully recover or they, they come out with all these platitudes and you're mm. like, that's not how it works. I'm going to fight this battle and I'm going to win. It's always the war metaphor. Yeah, yeah, always. My mother is a prime example, was 69. She didn't smoke if you exclude what she did in the 60s but we don't talk about that she hardly drunk she was super fit she did every single tick of every single box of the what you're supposed to do to have a healthy lifestyle and it didn't matter and i think the platitudes particularly really hurt when people think they're saying things to say well you've got to stay strong and you've got to this and the other and as you say Sarah to me it's like you have to have a package where you come out with this plan or something and it doesn't always run in the way but she put everything together the, the funniest thing and this is this is an absolute truth story about four days before she died she's in hospital my stepfather's there my father visited and our rabbi and he was laughing. He said, I don't remember a time when I've sat there at the bedside with the husband and the ex-husband. And they were all having a great time talking. And she had a great time. And she sort of said afterwards to me and my sister, it's like, you know, that was it. That's great. 
Thank you. One of the interesting conversations that's come out around the assisted dying um, campaign for liberal Judaism being involved has been the conversation about choice and privilege and the kind of social justice recognition that being able to choose is also associated with a certain amount of privilege and that that's been Mm -hmm. particularly highlighted during COVID where the elements of choice and you talk about DNRs particularly often lie with those people who do have the privilege and not necessarily with the people who need the choice most of all. I think that that stems from a a culture, doesn't it, of paternalism where we're making choices for other people as a default approach and we should trust other people and assume that they want to make choices for themselves and that would go some way to countering the experiences during COVID. I think also that a lot about those discussions around DNA CPR, for example, have been around very poor communication. It's not the principle that you might want to refuse treatment at the end of life. It's about how that's communicated. And those have been very, very poor discussions. And again, it's really around making time for those discussions and trusting individuals. It's like you say, you know, when when, when someone says that I don't want this, it's made to appear that they're actually giving up. They're not saying that they're not fighting this fight and you know it's the same argument I find about contraception it's like well well, you've got to have the child or you're this it's like no that isn't how it works it's not that side yeah yeah we need to understand I think you know wanting to control the manner and, and timing of what happens to you including your death does not equate to a wish to die it's about having control and having autonomy but I think there's a huge education process. This is sort of tiny with what Charlie was saying about privilege, because I think a lot of people do not feel that they have the agency or the knowledge or the confidence to be able to question the medical profession. Um, and I've seen this myself in my own family. I remember when my, my aunt died of a brain tumour a few years ago, and my uncle would not question the doctor's at any stage, because they were the doctors, therefore they knew everything. And even though myself and my mum, who, who, who's his sister, could sort of see that there were things that we weren't quite confident about in terms of the care she was getting, he was just not in a position to query that. And I think, again, I think, you know, it does come down to some extent to a position of privilege and feeling confident enough to challenge another professional. And a lot of people don't. And I don't know how we do that. But until people feel that they have the agency to kind of stand up for themselves, not just in assisted dying, but every mm-hmm. every um, encounter with the medical profession. I think I think the answer to that is is so so Dignity's sister charity, Compassion in Dying, is doing exactly that work. So it's got a, a new program around a peer navigator, Hina, um, who herself has a life changing diagnosis, and she has been talking to other people who've just received life changing diagnosis and talking to them about how they can navigate that right. that journey. What kind kind of things they need to look out for, what kind of questions they can have for their consultants, how they can take control. Mm. And, and, you know, it's really around that kind of learning. So Compassion provides free living wills, advice on LPAs, uh, DNA CPR. We've got an an excellent nurse clinician. So in a small way, the charity, again, is, is just as importantly as Dignity in Dying is trying to change that culture and empower people at the end of life. I mean, I'm really interested to know how we can influence, you know, more orthodox, organised religion, really, through through the launch of this uh, religious alliance for dignity and dying and other ways. Because I know there will be lots and lots of people within those structures that say the way we die at the moment isn't sufficient. It's not good enough. It needs to change. One of our other streams of Judaism, very close to us, some would call them our sister movement. And one of their rabbis from 
their movement, we did um, a session where we travelled from synagogue to synagogue at the local communities and taught in the other one. And during that, while I was teaching about liberal Judaism within a reform context, the rabbi there said, you know, what strikes me is that if liberal Judaism didn't exist, reform Judaism would have had to invent it. And I think that there is a sense that you need somebody and that they're great examples of these in, in Judaism to take a leap into the sea. And sometimes it takes others time to catch up. So liberal Judaism has always had equilineal descent. Now other streams of Judaism recognise that Judaism can go through the father as well as through the mother. Liberal Judaism had mixed faith blessings and now um, also will do them under the chuppah. Other streams of Judaism will also in time. And I think, you know, we're now seeing, for example, uh, women rabbis within Orthodox Judaism, you know, still struggling the fight to be recognised by the establishment. And we can talk about that, but um, certainly existing. And I think sometimes it just takes time. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but it does take time. And it first takes somebody to take a leap into the sea, to use a great Jewish midrash, um, Jewish story, in order for others to, to follow. But sometimes you don't want everything to happen at once. You know, you have to have the checks and the balances and we move we move forward. There are things that liberal Judaism, for me, sometimes you go, hold on, that's a bit too far. I need to just think about it. And that doesn't mean to say I'm not agreeing with it. I'm not disagreeing with it. I spend some time talking to people on the orthodox side. You know, this would be a difficult subject. In fact, this would be almost a non-subject because it's it's non-discussable. It's a whole conversation. I had a very interesting um, discussion with somebody who's writing a book at the moment about Judaism in the UK. We got talking about, I think it was 95, Clive Lawton, who's a Jewish academic looking at um, demographies, looked at um, the question of Jewish continuity. And it was a massive... Um, issue for the for particularly for United Jury were really worried about Jewish continuity. There was lots of stickers made, and Rebecca uh, can see remembers the uh, remembers the campaign. There was this big worry that basically progressive Judaism or people marrying out, which we don't even really you know use the term within liberal Judaism, was going to dilute or get rid of Judaism. And we've seen now, you know some 20 something years later that that's just not the case and I think this fear is always there because the fear is what keeps people either keeps people within or actually means that they're lost forever to it so he asked me was I worried about status within liberal Judaism you know was I worried now and and I referred back to this 1995 said it's just you know we're just not talking in those terms. I don't worry about whether doing mixed faith blessings or supporting campaigns, being a political Judaism is going to dilute Judaism. It's not even in our vocabulary. I think it's about that actually it's about how wide is our tent that we can ensure that people feel comfortable within it. And we're not talking about status in the same way as we used. And that's where to me, when you talk about uh, same-sex marriage, that doesn't make Make it dilute what you have. Exactly. It just adds and it doesn't, but it doesn't add and remove, which is where I think some people think it does or take up space that would have been, you know, it's not like it's taking up space in the jar that now can't be filled by people who are from other marriages. It's just adding. Absolutely. And I think a lot of these conversations are along the same line. It's just looking at this and saying things change. 
things change and things move on. You know, Sarah, you started this, the importance of stories, of mm. actually it's important to tell these stories because that's where people suddenly see themselves inside this campaign. I think we have to get those stories out there and we have to tell them because, Leo, as you said today, that's how we how we make change. And it's how we change our minds as well, to what Sarah was saying as well. We change our minds either through living through something or through hearing others' stories. Absolutely. One of our great storytellers died just last week uh, Noel Conway, the lecturer and, and grandfather who was our one of our amazing advocates. He had motor neurone disease and he campaigned for, for six years and he led the legal case that we took. And in the end, his, his uh, motor neurone disease had attacked his, his lungs and he was on a ventilator 24-7. And he, he was becoming increasingly locked into his own body and, 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 you know, his neck muscles beginning to go. He couldn't move. Um, he couldn't speak. His voice was going as well. So he, he asked them to turn off his ventilator. So it was the kind of least worst of the options, really, about how he was going to die. And we understand that it was a, a very long process that, you know, they had to sedate him first, obviously. And they didn't know how long that would take. And if he was in distress when they took the ventilator away, they would give him more drugs. But in the end, he, he died fairly quickly. So rest in peace, Noel. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing his story with us mm. as well. Um, it's... Uh, it's very moving as well when we, we know and have met and hear the stories of some of these greats who, who do change history. He was an amazing man and he, he, he changed the mind of his own MP, Daniel Kovchinsky, who's a, an ardent Catholic and was ardently opposed, but now is one of our biggest supporters in Parliament. Wow. So. Hearts and minds. Mm. Um, so you talk about changes and there's two interesting things that come up in the news this week about changes and it's all to do with women. Uh, the first is a woman teacher in the Orthodox side has became a rabbi but has lost her job, Charlie. Yeah, it's a controversial story also because it's uh, difficult to know what the best way, particularly as a progressive woman rabbi, to support her is because it sounds like it's uh, not where she taught that has meant that she lost her job but rather the chief rabbi's office and there's a big question of authority and what does that mean she's a great great teacher um who's influenced a huge spectrum of jury and it's um very sad in a world that actually i think you know very personally and i've talked about it before here where we've seen united synagogue really shift in terms of its approach to women i am always referred to as rabbi very respectfully by my counterparts in the united synagogue and so to see this really makes me very sad because it does seem like a, a, yeah. a backward step and a lack of recognition for a very, very learned person who has the power really to bring people into United Synagogue. Although I would like to make a fuss about it, and there's also part of me that says, this isn't my battle. Although I would support her, I don't think I have the right to possibly turn around to the Orthodox and tell them what to do on this one. I think that's where it's it's sort of difficult to see how. For me, it's more that whether I do more harm than good in terms of where her affiliation sits. But, mm. you know, we have the great Aaron London, Rabbi Aaron London, who is working with uh, liberal Judaism, another one who's a Maharat, who has, um, has Orthodox Mufa, um, and 
and he's working with us. I think they got there both of the she got her shmika at the same place. Yes. And she's incredible and really um we're learning so much as a as a liberal Judaism and also working with reform Judaism from her incredible experience. And then their story it just makes me laugh and massively frustrating. We have this new MKs in Israel um and the Haredia put out a picture of the new parliament and they have smudged out the pictures of all the women. Well, you know, progress takes time. And um, <laughs> I think this idea with the Israeli government, the current Israeli government, if, um, somebody put on Facebook yesterday of fragile hope. So, you know, it's um, there is a lot of fragility to this hope and a lot of reasons not to hope, but we have to hold on to the small gleams that we, we can see, I think. I think the thing that was funny that someone said is that while they smudged out all the pictures of all the women, they actually left the pictures of the gay and non-Jewish ministers in there. Maybe they've gone forward on one side, even if they can't yeah, go forward on another. On <laughs> like one step forward and two step back. I have to say my greatest news this week in terms of uh, the media was that um, I suddenly realised that This Is Us was uh, back on Prime. They have restarted episodes after COVID. And uh, so I watched <laughs> the first episode, the next first episode of the last se- series last night and realised that, uh, you know, I every single episode I cry. I don't know any of you watch it but I, I cry from beginning of episodes it's really if you have not watched This Is Us it, you must go and watch it watch it from the beginning from season one is this the one with twins? it's triplets Triplets. triplets right I think I did watch the first one I don't think I cried Charlie do you cry at everything because um, I remember you said you also cried at Rocket Man yeah are you, you are a big crier. I, I, I am a big TV movie. I like. I very rarely cry in anything else. But it did. You know that did start with being pregnant. Well, maybe it started before. But when I was pregnant, I realised that I was starting to cry through. You know the word that's original advert, and the boy and his dad are sitting in the car, and he says that um, yes. you know his friend's got this great big computer system, and it's amazing. He says, "Oh, what's his dad like?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't know. He never comes to things." He says, "Not like you. Can't get rid of you." That would have me in tears so yeah maybe I do cry everything. Sarah are you a crier have you got any um recommendations for us no I haven't I haven't seen this is us um did you see transparent did you watch transparent yes love transparent I thought that that made me cry a bit I thought that was wonderful great woman rabbi yes indeed um what I've been watching is motherland have you seen the new motherland series oh no but I have heard good things I have uh, heard good things amazing and that won't make you cry at all it's absolutely unless with laughter it's hilarious so really good now, um, what I've been doing actually I, I'm convinced one of my favourite writers is Nora Ephron um, mm-hmm. you know the, the sort of the, the screenwriter and I'm convinced that her successor is is Curtis Sittenfeld have you read any of her books? No No one's ever heard of her. I don't know why she's a multi-million selling author but she wrote American Wife which is around the, the, the story the imagined story of Laura Bush so and she's written this new book called Rodham um, which is obviously about about Hillary Clinton if Hillary hadn't met married Bill and it's wonderful it's just wonderful these books like you you know you really get a, a sort of sense I don't know how she does it but she re- recreates a real sense and you end up with this this, this real liking for Hillary and real dislike for Bill um, so I'm recommending that as well as Shit's Creek obviously <laughs> we have to always touch upon Shit's Creek in, in, in this podcast absolutely we another fan yeah, we yeah, all yeah. love Shit's Creek but you have to tell us Sarah who are you in Shit's Creek oh I'm the mum I'm 
not channeling the mum, obviously. So who are you channeling? I mean, you can't, are you who are you who are you channeling? Who do you all channel? I'm also Moira Rose, although regular listeners of this podcast will know that really I would like to be Alexa, but my daughter, <laughs> my daughter puts me in my place and tells me I'm definitely. Definitely more you are. <laughs> um, you have to speak in a certain way to be Alexa. I can't do it. I can't really do it. When you hear it, it's unmistakable. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm co-chair of another organisation called the Abortion Support Network, an amazing funder of abortions. And there is a young woman who works in that who's American, um, not the founder, Mara, who is amazingly American as well, an amazing woman. But um, this, this, this young woman is is brilliantly like Alexa and just brilliantly. We want to get her on the podcast, okay? Just say Definitely. So contact details. Leo, what have you been what have you been watching anything recently? Any recommendations from you? Well they're not recommendations because they're old, but I've been for some reason came up and I pressed go on it again because I had I never finished uh, Orange is the new black. I never finished that either. Couldn't remember where I got to so I ended up starting watching sort of halfway through season three and I've just finished season three, the final of season three where Cindy converts to being Jewish and it's uh, very, very good. And, okay. and, and you sit there and you listen to her. And now with all the stuff that we've just gone through of uh, Black Lives Matter and everything about Jews of colour and everything, and she converts and, and she gives this speech to the rabbi when asked the you know three times and it's just really really good it's worth worth watching again and i also for my light-hearted stuff again i never finished frankie and grace oh i like that and again i was halfway (laughs) through and i just i know i've seen a lot of these but you can watch them again and I sort of watched, started watching again, and it's just so well written. And when you watch it, it's pushing on things that were undercurrent. Frankie is always getting stoned, but it's sort of off camera. It's now on camera, and they're actually like, we don't care. It's funny that this that you're watching this, and exactly the same time, I think it was last week, that a 15-year-old kid in the UK got done for cannabis and it's like really why are we still pushing this as a law it just seems to be so we've got other really much more important problems liberal judaism's next campaign you heard it here first um just joking well i've watched the mayor of east town has anyone seen the mayor of east town? Oh, I love that. also i'm watching that I'm watching that watching that what's it called it's the mayor of east town it's kate winslet's Oh, yes, I've seen that written about. There's been a lot of buzz about it. It's very, very good. I've been a Kate Winslet fan since she was in Heavenly Creatures when she was about 17 or something. So I kind of feel that, I'd like to say I've grown up with her, or I think she's about five years younger than I am. She's equally good in this. Really interesting questions there about portrayal of women on screen as well and what she's been asked about in terms of the way that she looks much more than about the character. Um, I want to thank you so much, Sarah, for being with us today. It's been Wonderful. A joy and so interesting and opened up more questions than um, ever and um, more opportunities for podcasts in the future, I am sure. If people want to find you and find out more about uh, Dignity and Dying or any of the campaigns that you're involved in, where can they find you? So thank you. It's been it's been amazing. I've really enjoyed the conversation um, and thank you for listening and, and, and discussing it with me. Um, Dignity and Dying is on all the 
sort of social media platforms. So you can you can Google, Google us and, and find us that way. Um, I'm on Twitter. If people want to say hello, Sarah Wooden. I, I'd urge people to, if they wish, to join the Religious Alliance for Dignity in Dying. We'll put the, the web address in the in the notes of the programme. But it's free. Um, and if you can add your voice there, then that will create that that momentum, that upswell of, of view that we, we're going to need to change the law. And uh, Rebecca, if they want to find you when you're not in your garden. So, yeah, go to my Instagram page. It's by far the night- nicest. It's Rebecca Singerman Knight on Instagram. And there's lots of pictures of my peonies and my poppies this week. Should you want to see me occasionally jump into Twitter, I'm at rsingerman. These days, I'm normally lurking or trying to stay away from it. And Leo. So you can find me still on Twitter, WFC Kigo. Uh, still post occasionally, but not as much as I used to. But you can find me on Facebook discussing various different things, including what I'm up to at the moment and uh, synagogue technology. And finally, Charlie, where can they find more of Charlie? You can find more of Charlie on Rab Charlie on Twitter as Charlie Beginski on Facebook, all over the Liberal Judaism website. Also talking about uh, dignity in dying. You can catch um, our video recording on there of Baroness Meacher in conversation with Rabbi Danny Rich. If you're interested in hearing more about that conversation. We look forward to seeing all of you next time in our virtual studio, hopefully equally as sunny. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.